John chapter 6 is where we are. Long chapter that we're going to embark on tonight um, as we continue the red letters of John, focusing on the words of Christ, the way of Christ, what he did, what he said, so that we might live under the reign of Christ. Again, that's what it means to be in the kingdom. It simply means to live under the reign of this king. But we need to know who this king is. It's, this is a very different kind of king. John uh, 6, we see the concern of Christ. You also might say the compassion of this king. So look with me, John 6, verses 1 through 15. I actually un- have underlined the words of Jesus. Not a lot of red uh, this, this time in this passage, but we do need this whole um, story. You probably are, you may be familiar with this this miracle. It's the only one that's in all four of the Gospels. So let's look at this together. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. But Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. So Jesus, after raising his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? But he was saying this only to test him, for he himself knew what he intended to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not enough for them, for each to receive just a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was plenty of grass in the the place, so the men reclined, about 5,000 in number. Stop there for a second. There were women and children likely there too, but this is a patriarchal context. Typically only the men were mentioned, uh, were, were given mention of, but so think at least double that number, a sea of humanity. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also of the fish, as many as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he said to to his disciples, gather up the leftover pieces so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with pieces from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So the king withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give me strength and uh, the words of life for myself and for my friends here. No matter who we are, no matter where we come from, no matter why we're here even, I pray that we would experience the compassion of God, that we might be healed. In Jesus' name, amen. So all worldly religions, ancient religions in particular, basically had this view of God or the gods. And that is, God is mad (laughs) and mad at us. 
And in order for us to satisfy the wrath of God, to appease God, well, flesh and blood of us was required. That, that's basically the view of, you could sum up all ancient world religions with that view. God is angry, filled with wrath, and needs to be satisfied or appeased or placated. And the only way to do that was a sacrifice of human beings sacrificing their blood and their flesh so that this wrathful God or gods may be appeased. Let me ask you, is, is that, that going to make you love God or anyone else for that matter? A God that requires torture in order for a transaction to occur. You give, you are tortured, you give your flesh, your blood, and the transaction, the exchange is God will now, you know, embrace you. Not really you, though. As some theories go, we'll embrace Christ. And, well, you, because God can't really see you, you're kind of hidden in Christ in that sense. And so here's what unfortunately happened. So I'm, I'm, inter- I'm talking about Christianity along the same lines as these ancient pagan religions, because that is what happened. This seeped into uh, certainly the Old Testament, and it's still alive and well in terms of the theory of atonement uh, this today in Christian circles. It's the same kind of God Wrathful God that demands a pound of your flesh. And even if we substitute Christ, that's what's happening, is Christ is offering up Christ's flesh and blood on our behalf so that this wrathful, angry God might be appeased. And I I will never forget, um, see, I was was trained and educated along the lines of, of that theory, actually. And I'll never forget talking to a, a student. I was, I was kind of like Rachel Toon is now. I was a chaplain to college students basically once upon a time. And, and, I, and I love how, you know, the only difference between a college student and, and, a, and people that are older than that is a college student is hopefully putting down the mask. You get to see who they really are. Uh, we think we're advanced and really it just means we put up a mask. And so in pastoring churches, the only difference was I was looking at people who were doing like this, acting like children, like, you can't see me, you can't see me. And a college student at least will put it down and let you see them. Now, the funny thing was I could see the adults, too. <laughs> right? Um, so this college student, though, came to me and had become a Christian. And she was processing this certain theory of atonement, which this is how she processed it. She asked me this question. She said, Chad, does God now like me because God can't see me and sees Christ in front of me instead? And I was sitting there thinking, I was like, everything inside me said, that's wrong. And it was, I was telling, because my, my brain, my theology kind of said, well, I guess, I guess so. But everything down here in my heart said, no, that is not a correct theory of atonement. God sees who we really are, and God loves who we really are. And now we begin to understand why Christ came. This is actually the Christian view of atonement. It's not a transaction between an angry God and really bad people that's occurring here. 
The proper Christian view of atonement is not a God who requires a blood sacrifice of a human in order to appease God, but in Jesus, we see God becoming human in order to give the flesh and blood of God to the world. It's the exact opposite. It turns that ancient pagan understanding of religion on his head. The concern of Christ in this passage in John 6 is to feed the hungry. It's to feed the hungry. And so here's how this God, the God that is, shows up into the world by giving his flesh, his blood for the hungry. Not demanding it from humans, but giving God, giving God's flesh and blood to humans so that we might be free, so that we might be healed. So the concern of Christ is to feed the hungry, and we are the ones who are hungry, not God. We are the ones who are hungry, and so God comes to give us the food that we need. Here's the main teaching. Here's just how I want to put it. Instead of demanding the flesh and blood of humanity, God gives God's flesh and blood for humanity. Do you see the difference? Instead of demanding the flesh and blood of humanity, God gives God's flesh and blood for humanity, for all of creation, as a matter of fact. So two headings, Jesus is the new and better prophet. We see that in this passage. Moses is very prominent again, uh, intentionally so. And then secondly, Christ is the new and better king. Jesus is the new and better prophet. And we could say Jesus is the new and better king. He's Jesus and Christ somewhat interchangeably there. First, Jesus is the new and better prophet. He's the new and better Moses. And that's, if you know the Old Testament, you, this comes through very clearly in this passage and even more so as we go in, in, in John chapter 6. So as the passage says, this was the time of Passover. Passover is a Jewish feast. It, was, it celebrates the time when God liberated the children of Israel or the children of God, uh, God's people, um, from Egypt. So you may know the story, uh, God's people were enslaved, being oppressed in Egypt, and Moses is the prophet that God calls to deliver and free the people. And so this exodus occurs through the prophet Moses from Egypt, then into the wilderness for 40 years. And there's an episode in the wilderness. At one point, the people are hungry, and they cry out to Moses, tell God <laughs> to give us some food. And so, sure enough, God supplies bread from heaven, manna. It was like, it's like quail. Bread from heaven miraculously falls to the ground, and there's tons of it. And so Jesus, oh, you hear the imagery here in, in the passage, even the part that we read, this is in the background. Moses and that story in Exodus is very much in the background. Exodus 16 is particularly where the manna from heaven story is found, the bread from heaven. So what we see now with this scene with Jesus is kind of a mini wilderness. This is all very intentional. A mini wilderness where these a mass of humanity again, wandering with no food. So they're out in this, this area, it's, it's deserted, there's no, there's no uh, KFC, you know, there's no Bojangles, there's no Chick-fil-A 
and it's Sunday, and it's closed anyway, so um, there's no food, and so we're meant to think of, ah, oh, wilderness, little mini wilderness here. God's people need food, are hungry, need food, so Jesus, um, sure enough, begins to provide the fulfillment, actually, of that story in Exodus as the new and better prophet. Jesus shows up, doesn't just give them miraculously food from heaven, but Jesus is the food from heaven. You see that? Jesus is the food that they need that will give life. Jesus, God's flesh, God's blood is the food that we need. That's, what, that's who the hungry, the, the hungry people, that's what we need in order to be filled. And so this is all going on. Jesus is the new and better prophet who, yes, grants us freedom from our slavery to our egos in particular, grants us freedom to slavery, to our false self and self-absorption. But much better than Moses, this freedom that is granted to us, well, this is a freedom that isn't just for one people group, isn't just for one nation, it's for all the people. And this is where we see this new and better prophet is radically inclusive for all the people, not just one nation or people group. Jesus is the new and better Moses this way. Verse 14, John wants us to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of a very specific prophecy. Jesus is the prophet, verse 14 says, who is to come into the world. The people acknowledge that. And these are Jewish people. What they're thinking of is Deuteronomy 18 uh, that says this, verse 17 and following. And the Lord said to me, to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet from their countrymen like you, from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them everything that I command him. So John's saying these people recognize that that prophecy is being fulfilled in Christ, the new and better Moses, who is one of them. But, but not just, again, one people group. This is... John says the word took on flesh, all flesh, not just Jewish flesh, not just white flesh, black flesh, Asian flesh. All, Jesus is representing now humanity. It's a new and better prophet, much better than Moses. Jesus comes to give freedom to all. Well, they take Jesus by force. They try to. They try to take him by force to make him king. Yeah, this is our guy. This is who is going to put us on top. And now here's, here's what our ego is doing. And this is, what, this is what also just what it means to be a human being is we in, intuitively and instinctively, in order to feel like we are free, well, someone's got to be enslaved. In order for us to, to have, to no longer be oppressed, and to have power, well, then we have to take away the power from somebody else. It's this very binary, dualistic view of the world. And so naturally, these people of God are thinking, Jesus is going to give us liberation. And so freedom for them meant through violence, through power, through wiping out all those bad people. So that we, the good people, might be on top. And so naturally they're going to take him by force so that he can be that king who can 
wipe out all the bad people, like smoke them all and put the good people back in a position of power. And Jesus is not that kind of king. And so he slips away to go be by himself, to be with his father. Jesus, in fact, is the opposite kind of king. Lastly, Christ is the new and better king. We, if left to ourselves, we will just reduce life that way. In order for me to have something good, well, someone else needs to suffer. In order for me to be a winner, there's got to be a loser. And friends, the gospel, as Richard Worth likes to point out, is a win-win proposition. It's not a win-lose. Everybody wins. Or it's not the gospel. It's not good news if some people still lose. Is it? Because that could be you. Why, why wouldn't it be you? Um, because, because you're better? No, the gospel is a win-win <laughs> for everyone. So we see this with this new and better kind of king. In uh, in the minds of these people, the prophecy even from Deuteronomy 18. So when they say, this is the prophet who's to come into the world, again, they're thinking of national liberation. Our country is the best. They're going to be put on top. I cringe every single state of the union address, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, when they stand up and say, we're awesome. Like America is the best world. Uh, country in the world that the world has ever seen. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Every single time. Every, I cringe. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, okay, that's fine. But just, just know that that's not, has nothing to do with this king. That has nothing to do with the kingdom of God and everything to do with this worldly notion of a kingdom, which, yeah, wants to strive to be the best. <laughs> in order to be the best, you got to have losers right? This is a very different kind of king, much better, new and improved king. You see, Jesus doesn't wield a political sword in violence. Instead, he takes the sword. And this is how that vicious cycle is broken. This is also what's happening on the cross. God offers up God's own flesh and blood as a sacrifice of love for a violent world. Yeah, we are violent, not God. We easily project our violence onto God, though, don't we? And this is what we see at the cross. God offering God's flesh and blood as a sacrifice of love for a violent world, thus breaking the vicious cycle of violence. Every single war, there are two now going on on the planet. Just vicious, ugly, barbaric stuff that needs to be called out, absolutely. Any violence, any barbarism, no matter who's the perpetrator, and it's got to be called out and condemned. But this is how every war goes, including the wars that you know, our own nation have been involved in. There is one nation that hates another nation. That nation responds to hate with more hate. Violence against one, and there's a response of violence. Is, is, that's the vicious cycle. Uh, violence responded with violence. Hate responded with hate. And as Dr. Martin Luther King said, at some point, the only way you get out of that is someone has to respond to hate with love. Someone's got to respond to violence with, well, by turning the cheek. And this is what Jesus does on the cross. But not to satisfy a violent God. <laughs> no, no, no. To give God's flesh and God's blood for a violent people. 
This is what we see. Responds to hate with love, and it breaks the cycle. So you want to live in the kingdom? You live that way. You want to follow this king? You, yes, turn the cheek. Someone demands your uh, your cloak, you you give it to them. Someone says, demands you walk a mile, you walk more, however the language goes in the Gospels, you know what I'm saying? This is what it means to live in this kingdom. And it's a, it's a radical sort of freedom, friends. I mean, don't, don't do that unless it's authentic. Um, don't do it in order to earn the love of God. You have the love of God. From the love of God, you begin, and we begin to learn how to live into that. And, and it does take some discipline for sure, but that's what freedom looks like. It looks like forgiving our enemies, loving our enemies. Let me ask you something. If, if Jesus tells us to love our enemies, why would God not? You see, this, that's a bad theory of the atonement. If Jesus tells us to forgive 77, 70 times 7, which is really an absurd way, it's a, it's a way of saying forgive infinitely, well, does, why would we not expect God to do the very same thing? And so here we see God on the cross, arms open, outstretched open wide, saying to a violent world, I forgive you. And the cycle is broken. That's the gospel. That's this king. So to live in the kingdom simply means to live according to the reign of this kind of king who gives of himself to the hungry. Um, I'm wearing my my 12 baskets t-shirt. Y'all see it? 12 baskets representing this. Most of y'all know this. Some of you might not know about this organization that we're, that we love and we've increased our giving, by the way, we've doubled it from House of Mercy, our monthly giving to 12 Baskets, which is a nonprofit in West Asheville that really just seeks to give food to the hungry, whoever's hungry, no strings attached. It's unconditional, free, no matter who you are, rich, poor, black, white, whatever. Are you hungry? Well, here's some food. Indiscriminately, just gives it out. There's no fencing going on at 12 Baskets. There's no wall up where you got to do certain things or you got to say certain things in order to get this food. No, it's just food for the hungry. Are you hungry? Here's some food. That comes, you heard it, the, the name 12 Baskets comes from this passage and the other three in the Gospels too. But in this passage, this, this passage is unlike the other three accounts in this, in this way. In the other three Gospels, Jesus, it says, gives the food to the disciples who then give it to the mass of humanity. In this passage, John is intentional about this, wants us to see that no, Jesus is himself the server giving the food to the, somehow to a, the mass of humanity. And then there's so much left over. There are 12 baskets that are now filled, well, with Christ. There's plenty of Christ to go around. The number 12, you may know that's a significant number in the Bible. I, I, I think of it this way. It symbolizes the people of God. Well, the people of God now under the reign of this king is anyone who takes of Christ, anyone who takes of Christ, and Christ is for all that are hungry. And there's plenty of him to go around. It's, he's infinite, and God's love is infinite. It never runs out. There's, it goes from a little mustard seed or like a little, some loaves and fishes to feeding 
over 10,000 people and having plenty left over. This is the abundance of Christ that Christ came to give to the world. So, how are the hungry healed? How are they made full, made whole? Well, it's by understanding the very nature of God. And a good place to go um, to understand who God is, is one of the most famous places is Luke 15. And I just want to end by calling our attention to the prodigal son story where, um, and, and when I say how, how someone filled like, like spiritually, not just physically, I'm also saying how is someone made whole? How does someone change? Well, it requires a God like this. It's not going to come from a God who's exacting vengeance and torturing humanity in order to get what he wants. That's not going to change anybody. <laughs> and so here's Jesus telling us, showing us who God is. And he talks about the story of a son. You'll probably know the story goes off and, well, first of all, takes all the inheritance of the father rudely and goes off and squanders it all. Um, through his living and is all about ego, self-absorption, until he ends up starving. He's hungry, and he's longing just to get the slop that the pigs are eating. And then he remembers, oh, my, my dad, if I go back home, surely I can at least become like a servant. That's the best I can hope for, but it's much better than where I am now. And so, you know, he comes home. And the father, meant to represent God, is not waiting to punish him. It's not waiting to ground him, put him in time out for a while so he can learn his lesson. And the son's probably thinking, he's probably rehearsing what he's going to say to get God on his side. And I imagine it this way. As he has his head down, the father rushes up on him like bum rushes him, throws his arms around him and says, get our servants because we're going to throw, get the fatted calf, we're having a party because of my son who was lost is now home. And Jesus tells us that story to say, this is who God is. And friends, when you get that, especially when you understand, okay, I, I am guilty. Like I, 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 I do bad things. I, I'm very selfish all the time. I deserve the wrath of God, if truth be told. And when, when, when that's you and you realize instead of wrath, you get compassion and love, <laughs> that changes everything. It changes you. Let's pray. Jesus, help us to believe that, that this is true. And you, you say in John 18 that your purpose is to come and bear witness to the truth. Bear witness to the reality that this is who you are. Even though we deserve wrath, you give us compassion and love instead. You give us yourself, your own flesh, your own blood, so that we might be filled. May we take of you. In Jesus' name, amen.